0: Good morning, church. My name is Ed. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are spending the summer in the Psalms, specifically in the Psalms of Ascent. And our band, um, our team read our psalm this morning, Psalm 123. And if you want, you could turn there in your Bible, um, phone or whatever, or you can um, just follow along with us on the screen um, as we read it. Uh, when I was, um, which I'll, I'll do in one second, when I was in high school, I lived with some, uh, I lived with my buddy and his family for just the very end of high school, and um, they're, um, you know, doing something like that, you know, you have to get used to a whole new group of people, right, uh, different parents, expectations, things like that, and I'll never forget one night we all went to, we all went out to hang out, and, um, and I came back. Um, a little late and um, I came back and I came to the front door and I rang the doorbell and um, I remember his brother was getting married at the time, so the doorbell had changed to like, here comes the bride, I remember that. I remember vividly because this is a story about a traumatic experience. Sealed in my brain, and um, I rang the doorbell. Here comes the bride. Here comes the bride. And then the door opens, and it was not a bride. It was uh, it was the dad of the house, uh, Jim. And uh, Jim was uh, he was a very successful doctor, a guy I really respected a lot. He was a guy who never really got like excitable or worked up or anything like that. Never raised his voice, nothing like that. Pretty serious guy, pretty mellow guy, um, and. When he opened the door, there isn't really a way accurately to describe the stare that he gave me, um, the look that I received. Um, we, we eventually started referring to it, uh, Tim, my friend, who's, this is his dad, and I, we started referring to it as the look, um, but there really is no way to describe it by just calling it the look. All I can say is that this look, I think, could stop traffic. This look could stop bullets probably. This look could melt a person right where they stood, which is exactly what it did to me as I kind of started telling him why we were late getting back from this thing and sorry, you know, and all that stuff. It just didn't matter what I said. It didn't matter what happened. And he didn't say anything. He just looked at me and stared at me. And I just like was a puddle right there on the doorstep. And then I went in, and I remember my friend Tim wasn't with me. I went into Tim's room and told him about the look to to say to him, like, can you believe how... The funny thing is, again, thinking back, he didn't say anything, but I went back into my friend's room, and I was just like, you'll never believe what he did, you know? And I'm basically describing how mean his dad was, and how awful his dad was, and how unfair his dad was, and how bad he made me feel. And then I realized he didn't actually say anything. He just stared at me the whole time <laughs> with this cold, icy stare of death. And then my friend started chewing me out, like, you know, like, because he's like, hey, man, what were you doing here late and all that stuff? And you woke everybody up and everything. And... Um, so uh, what eventually would happen is um, my friend's mom, um, unfortunately, the family I lived with, um, she got sick and she ended up passing away. And, um, and uh, several years later, um, uh, several of us were hanging out a few years after college talking, and um, we decided that we would um, do kind of a parent trap situation uh, because Ellie's mom at the time was also single. And so we set up Jim with Ellie's mom Cheryl and um, you know Jim's kids gave him Cheryl's number and uh, and he he we gave the kids her number. They gave it to him. He called her, and uh, she screened her calls at the time on an answering machine. You guys probably some of you guys don't know what that is, but an answering machine is this thing we used to have. And so uh, he would call, and it would always go to the answering machine, and he would never leave a message because he didn't want to leave a message. So eventually, we got the word to them: uh, just tell him to leave a message. We'll try to tell her to answer, but she probably won't. So he eventually had the courage to leave the message, and he set up their first date. And um, and at the time that this happened. We happened to be living with Ellie's mom because we were saving up money to buy a house. And so um, I'll never forget when he picked her up for her first date at the house and took her out and um, came back very late. (laughs) And... when you talk about satisfaction, you know, (laughs) what I communicated with him with, with one look, you know, (laughs) no, I wasn't able to pull off a look for like longer than five seconds because, uh, but it was a very satisfying five seconds. And we, uh, we, to this day, uh, they ended up getting married and he's my father-in-law and he's a wonderful guy. But to this day, we still talk about The look, because um, of the power that it has within it. There is a tremendous amount that can be communicated with a look. In fact, the longer the look takes place, the greater the stare that is unbroken, the more that seems can be communicated through it. I think we all have examples of this in our lives or situations, even to the point to where sometimes you get a look from a stranger and you'll just go crazy with that. You're like, what the heck was that all about, right? What was going on? What was I doing? What was happening? The psalm that we're looking at this morning is actually a psalm that is building quite a bit on a simple gaze that happens from one person to another. And a gaze is something that we've already talked about in a few of these other psalms because of how important where our eyes are fixed ends up being in terms of our life, especially our spiritual life. I want to read you Psalm 123. It's fairly short. And this psalm of ascent has to do with the relationship that the psalmist has to God himself. The psalm says this To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This psalm is a psalm of ascent. And each one of these that we've been looking at and we will be looking at for the rest of the summer is a psalm that was sung by the people of God as they approached Jerusalem for the holy days. Uh, we've talked about Psalms that, that, that reflect the fact that you, what we are as, as believers, followers of Jesus, uh, Christians, is ultimately, first and foremost, we are pilgrims. We're people who are living our lives on a pilgrimage, on a journey to a place that is our true destination and home, and where we are leaving from and what we are traveling through is not our home. We've talked about how the psalmist, uh, the moment they leave for that journey to the Holy Land, that would often take weeks, is immediately aware of just how foreign the world is to them, how uncertain travel is, how many threats and enemies there are potentially that must be dealt with. And last week, Justin talked about the simple fact, the reminder of why it is we're even on the journey to begin with. We are going to worship at the house of the Lord. Now, we have the benefit here, the tremendous benefit, of getting to worship in the house of the Lord every single week, to gather together and come together and worship. And like Justin talked about last week, um, a lot of us take that for granted. A lot of us take for granted the fact that we come together physically in person, and what that creates is a diverse group of people who are different in every way other than the fact that they are united by a love for Jesus and a desire to follow and serve him. It is our desire to come and worship that draws us to this place. And that ultimately, as pilgrims and Christians, we're not even going to feel at all really truly at home until the day comes that we are in heaven with our maker. Because that is the ultimate holy city, the ultimate destination for where we're going. Today, what we look at in this psalm, what we hear described here by the psalmist is this, exactly what the job description looks like of the person who is living this life. We've talked about what it feels like to live in this world. We've talked about where it is that we're trying to go. But what we haven't specifically talked about is what does that life actually look like when it's lived out? And ultimately, it is a job that is determined by the gaze of the person who's on the journey. We have spent the last year in the book of Romans and we've been talking about exactly how it is that we are saved. Why we must be saved. Why we need life that we can only find in God and in nothing else and in no one else. And so the question then becomes, if you receive that, if you accept that, if you want to live that out, then the question is, what then? What are we saved for? What are we saved to do? How are we saved to live? Now that we have freedom, now that we have life again, now that we know where we're going and what we're doing, what in the world do we do with that until we get there? How do we live that freedom out? What have I been saved for? How am I actually supposed to go about living this life of mine with all this new freedom? Now what the Bible teaches us This job description that we've been given, how exactly it is that we're to live, what exactly it is that we're supposed to do, is spelled out for us in this psalm. We are saved in order to serve. This psalm is about a person who is living the life of a servant whose eyes and gaze are fixed upon an incredibly good master. They look to them, and it is their gaze being fixed on them that determines everything about the way that they will live their life and how it's going to go, what they're going to get out of it, how they're going to handle the things that come in the midst of it. There, uh, there is no better description, I think, in Scripture of what it looks like practically to try to live out the life of a servant, what we're called to do, than in 1 Peter, where we read this. Peter writes this to the church. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone Love the brotherhood. If you go back and look at the most important verse in this passage, the central verse in this passage, it is this. We are to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. This is the most confusing concept ever because what we're ultimately called to be, who we are, seems like a complete and total contradiction. We are free so that we can serve because of the good news of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, we are saved. We are now free from sin. We are no longer in bondage, no longer in slavery. And the good news about what we get to do without freedom, guess what, everybody? We get to serve. What? We are free to serve? Yes. This, says Peter, is the good news of how it is that we get to live our lives moving forward. This person who has their eyes and their gaze fixed upon this good master is someone who has tremendous freedom, and what they choose to do with it is they choose to spend their life dedicated to service towards an incredibly good master. Freedom is so important to us, especially in this country. The freedom to be my own master is what is most important to us. To determine my own fate, to decide literally anything and everything about how my life must go. There is no greater goal in our mind that we could probably attain or reach in this life than to be able to have the freedom to control our lives. Freedom to decide our fate. Why on earth, would we give that up? Well, the problem, according to the Bible, is that we don't actually just need more freedom in order to be more happy and do well in life. What we need is to serve the greatest master that there is. No amount of freedom is going to make us ultimately happy and fulfill us. I mean, do we not live in a world in which our desire for freedom has found us in a place where we are desperate, absolutely desperate for meaning, for purpose, for any clear sense of our own identity? The Christian is a person who recognizes that our real problem is not that we just need to attain more freedom, more autonomy more opportunity, and different circumstances. It's that we must serve. That is actually where fulfillment comes from. That is where genuine and real happiness is found according to the Bible. We are called to be people who serve. Since the founding of our nation, and when people discuss freedom, there are debates about what it means to be free. Are we meant to be free to do whatever we want to do? Or are we meant to be free in order to do what we ought to do? And many of us, maybe even the longer that we live life on this earth, the more mistakes that we make, the more we realize that we may not always choose what is best and what is right. Right? We may be the source of more of the pain in our life than other people. We recognize that being in control all the time is maybe not necessarily supposed to be the end goal here. Uh, This psalm is about a person, a pilgrim on this journey, who identifies first and foremost in the job of a servant. They look to their master who is so good. And this servant, what it means to be a servant is simply to be a person who is seeking the good of others and not yourself, above yourself. So we are free to live as those um, who seek the good of others above our own good. The servant is someone who chooses to encourage others, to support others, others and to care for others the servant has decided this is the way they will live not just the thing that they will do today because it works to do it today you see according to scripture what it looks like to serve god is to serve others Jesus came and lived in the flesh in order to show us and give us lots and lots of examples that show us that what it means to be a servant of God is to say, I will serve others. I will consider others, as the language goes, more significant than myself. This is what it means to live out the gospel practically. But this doesn't mean uh, that the servant is uh, themselves what we would call a martyr, what we think of as a martyr, and most of the people you encounter in life that might seem this way fall in this category, these are people who insist on always doing more than you so that they never feel indebted to you, right? These are people who will do great things and kind things and wonderful things and serve and give constantly, but it's because their worst fear is that they ever owe anybody anything. Their worst fear is that, is that they don't get to feel as though they've actually become a better person than the person next to them. But this isn't what it is to be a servant. What it is to be a servant is to recognize that I have this good master that I can trust, and it is my desire, my joy to live for their benefit, for their good. To say I'm going to live as a servant is to look at the people around us and the situation around us as often as we can and to say, I'm going to put the needs of others before the needs of myself. Because guess what? Here's the news. God doesn't actually need anything from me how do you serve someone who doesn't need anything from you how do you serve the god of the universe how do you make his day a little bit easier how do you make his life a little bit better well scripture is very clear you serve god by serving others you serve god by loving others and the way that we do that is to put their needs above our own this is the parent who says i'm going to put your needs above my own and chooses to sacrifice Their agenda, their expectations for the sake of the needs of their child. This is the spouse who says, I am going to consider you more significant than myself. I will put your needs above the needs of my own. Not because it makes me happy, but because this is who God tells me to be. Because in the beginning, oh man, it will make you so happy. But eventually, it may not make you as happy to put the needs of your spouse above yourself but we don't do it for that reason. We do it because this is who God calls us to be. This is the small group leader or the Sunday school teacher who says, I'm going to consider you more significant to myself. I'm going to think about you and what you need, no matter how strange it may seem, no matter how difficult your personality may be, no matter how outside of my comfort zone I may need to step in order to minister to you and help encourage you in the gospel. I'm going to consider your needs more significant than my own, which means I'm going to have to be uncomfortable. This is the boss boss, who says, I'm going to consider you more significant than myself. Being in charge doesn't mean I expect everyone to run around serving me, but it means I have the privilege of caring about and thinking about other people. That God has given me power, and that what God calls us to do with power is to give it away, rather than to hoard it for ourselves. This is the neighbor who says, we may love each other, or we may not, I'll just say that, But I'm going to consider you more significant than myself as often as I can. This is the son or the daughter, and this is very revolutionary here, the son or the daughter who looks towards their parents and says, I'm going to be the first kid in the history of the universe to consider you more significant than myself, and so I'm going to treat you in a way that I think is better than I should be treated, than treating myself. One of the things that i think happened over the last couple of years as life got really hard for many of us was many learned a very important lesson and it was one that i'm glad many learned which was the lesson of self-care the need to stop and just say, How do I actually take care of myself and my family in this difficult time? Many people who, uh, you know, will always be thinking of other people but never thinking of themselves to a degree that's unhealthy, they kind of learned that they needed to take a break. In fact, there's many people who are leaving uh, things that they've done for a long time because they realize this isn't actually what I'm ultimately called to do or supposed to do, which is totally great and wonderful. Um, but I think one of the things that's also happened is it's become very very easy for so many of us to say that we have lost sight, for many of us not to say, but to simply lose sight of the need still moving forward from this day forward to still serve one another, right? It's become much harder. The stakes have gotten higher, And for many, in order to to deal with life over the last few years, one of the mistakes that has been made is by simply saying, I can't serve others anymore. I can't care about others anymore. I just have to care about myself. And if this is the way the world chooses to go, it is not the way that the sojourner on this journey is going to live their life. You know, I think a good name for this message is actually just against the grain, is the, is the name. Because every one of the things that we're going to look at, that, it, that, it, that, it, that we're called to do, and how we're called to live, is so unbelievably against the grain and countercultural. And the first is this, that we consider it a privilege to use our freedom in Christ to serve other people. How much more revolutionary can you get? Well, we'll try to get a little more revolutionary even as we go. Because what we, what we read about here as we read this psalmist is that it's not going very well for them as they're doing this. And this is why 1 Peter talks about things. So, so we read this uh, in our psalm. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who were at ease, of the contempt of the proud. I love the language here. It's like a very polite person complaining. I've had more than enough. No, thank you. No, thank you. I've had more than enough. No, thank you. I'm good. I'm full. I'm fine. If you translate this out, it literally is the language that's used when you've eaten too much and you're stuffed and you can't take any more food into your stomach. I'm good. I'm all full. Thank you, God. I'm good. Thanks. No more contempt of the proud. No more, please. I'm good. Thanks. It seems that the life of a servant isn't exactly the easiest life. In fact, it seems that this person is surrounded by people who are making their life harder. I know, it doesn't seem like a very good sales pitch for being a servant. If we read on in First Peter, where we were looking before, where Peter really unpacks what servanthood looks like and what it looks like to live in this world, what we come to realize is this, that as we serve, then we should expect contrary people. Now, you read that and you go, what in the world does that mean? I'm going to tell you right now, I really, really, really wanted to think of something really catchy to say here, but it absolutely is the most accurate thing that you could possibly say, and I found this word contrary, and I said, this is exactly what this is talking about here, so deal with it. What we are to expect as we live as servants is that the world will be full of people who are contrary to us, and what that means is simply this. What you want, they want the opposite. You will be living surrounded by people who want the opposite of what you want, who have an opposite way of viewing the world from the way that you view the world. You will be living your life in trying to serve others, and there will be so many around you who are simply content with serving themselves, that they're comfortable And they feel happy with that. And they seem completely fulfilled by that. And it is exhausting and discouraging and infuriating. And that's the best case scenario. Because the worst case scenario is they're outright enemies of yours. That they're actually actively trying to tear you down. That they're actually against you in this life. What we see in this psalm and what we read about in Scripture about the life of a servant is that they should expect and not be surprised by a tremendous amount of contrary people around them to such a degree that they're going to find themselves saying, I am stuffed, I'm full of how much I'm getting of this. I'd like some variety, please, something else. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2 again, for God, Fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. There are people out there who will cause us trials, who will do us harm. Some will be actively trying to bring us down. Others will not even know your name, but their actions will directly impact the way that you live your life. Much of this torment will come simply from those who are not choosing to live as servants themselves. The sheer satisfaction and contentment that they will take from serving themselves and something that is contrary to God will actually make your life difficult. It's actually as though living in a world where others aren't trying to serve one another is going to be bad. And that's what the psalmist tells us. These people are beaten down. They are weary. They are powerless. They seem incapable of actually stopping the destruction, actually fighting the enemy. And so they are looking to their master and they are pleading with their master, saying to them, would you stop this? Would you save me from this? Would you be my relief from this because there's so little that I can do. There are so many examples that I can give and so many times that we are in situations where we do what is good and what is right and we still suffer. And we don't understand why that is. Where we try to serve others and we try to serve God and things are difficult and it actually does cost us. So many of us would love to believe that if you follow Jesus and choose to live out the things that he says in scripture, that your life will objectively just get better and better qualitatively that you will have more money than other people because you did these good things that God says to do, that you will always have better relationships than other people, that you'll always have a nicer house than other people, that you'll always get along better than, like more than other people, that everyone will constantly look at your life and the circumstances around your life and what you're producing and say, I want everything that person has. But this isn't what the Bible describes from the servant of God. These are actually people who are often pretty weary. And that much of what they're up against is simply people who themselves are comfortable. People who say, I have no needs. I am content. I'm fine. I'm good. I have no need for any of this. God, any of this serving others. They are con- it is the contempt, the psalmist says, of the proud. The contempt of the proud. Those who are proud for the way that they live. And the world of which they're a part of so how do we respond to that how do we respond knowing that we're to expect to live amongst contrary people well the good news is because we are the servants of such an incredible master such an incredible master that our response because we read about this as we continue on in 1st Peter 2 he himself bore our sins In his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. The good news that we see in the very way that Jesus himself lived his life and the sacrifice he made for us is that the way that we are to respond as servants, the good news as servants is that we let God defend us. That although we are surrounded by contrary people, that our defense comes from God himself. That we do not need to bear the burden of defending ourselves, of fighting our enemies ourselves. And as good of news as this should be, I wonder sometimes if it really feels like good news to us or if we would prefer to defend ourselves and prefer to fight for ourselves. Coming to our own defense is one of the most natural things that there is. When someone tries to hurt you, you throw up your hands and you protect yourself. Self-defense is one of the most understood, easily understood relatable things in life someone's going to attack me, if someone's going to hurt me, if someone's going to try to rob me of my way of life that I deserve, if someone's going to hurt my country, my culture, my people, my family, I must defend myself and that which I care about. My son is getting to an age that I vividly remember, where you lay awake in bed at night and you think about how you would defend your home from an attacker. There's something that happens around this age and you just, I remember thinking about it and I know he's thinking about it because the other night he was going to bed and I said, um, he said, hey, dad, um, I I decided what I'm going to do if someone breaks in and attacks us. And, you know, of course, you know, the right thing of what a 10-year-old should do would involve either running or hiding or some combination of both of those things. He said, no, I would, and it was very specific. You can tell the plan had been thought through. And again, I remember doing this. I even remember asking some of my friends like in middle school and high school, like what would you do? And everyone had a game plan. They were very unrealistic, but everyone had a game plan. Instead of like wetting your pants and running away, which is actually what would happen. And he said, I would wait for him to come in, and then I would would pretend to be asleep, wait for him to leave, and then when his back was turned, I would hit him with your banjo, is what he said. There's a couple reasons he probably said that. Number one, that's the most useful thing you could do with my banjo. Number two, it is incredibly heavy. I think it's just that it's the heaviest thing that he could think of. And and so we talked about how loud they are and how hard it would be to move quietly with a banjo behind a person. But he was very set on this plan of attack. And the funny thing about talking to kids and young people about these sort of plans that we can develop in our minds, these, these for a lot of guys, these sort of fantasies even, about how it is that we would protect um, that which matters most to us is because this does seem hardwired into us to protect, to defend, and that it would be wrong, it would be irresponsible to not do that, wouldn't it? I think this is why scripture is so abundantly clear to us that it is not wrong to choose to not defend when we are attacked by the many contrary people around us in this world. Do you see why this is against the grain? Do you see how all of a sudden becoming a servant seems a little bit less radical than this? It's only going to get worse, guys. How we respond, how the servant responds is they aren't capable of really defending themselves. I mean, most of the things that we're fighting against, if we're honest, we do not have the ability to overcome through our own fighting and effort. So what many of us will do is simply try anyway and end up in endless conflict with all of those that we disagree with. You probably don't feel like you live in a world with endless conflict, but I don't know. Sometimes I kind of feel that way. There are so many reasons why we trust him to defend us, but ultimately the biggest and the greatest is the fact that he is sovereign. He is more powerful than we are. And the good news of being a servant with a loving and good master is that when you come across conflict, you look to your master for everything. You look to your master knowing that they will care for your needs and the needs of your family the the relationship of servants and masters that the psalmist is talking about that we read about in the bible is is not that of slavery but that of people who look to a wealthy and powerful like head of a large family and estate to basically be their king and provide for them and one of the benefits of that is that when people come against you you aren't on your own How many of us live and deal with conflict with this world and with people as though we are completely on our own with it and that we are the ones that have to fix it and solve it. And honestly, much of the time, we're not meant to be defenders and we're not very good at it because we only understand this much of what's actually going on when we're being attacked. We only understand this much of who's actually right and who's actually wrong, it even seems. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is Psalm 141, where the psalmist says, But my eyes are toward you, O God my Lord, in you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. If I'm going to seek refuge in you, God, it means I'm going to stop defending myself. I mean, I think we're okay with the idea of God helping us, but we also need to keep helping ourselves, right? So, so what the psalmist is saying here, though, is they're saying, if I'm going to seek refuge in God, then I will be defenseless without him. I am dependent on him to defend me and to protect me. Psalm 28 says this, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him, my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song, I give thanks to him. God is my shield. Not my shield is my shield. God is my strength, not my strength is my strength. This is very clear language by people who were constantly engaged in battle, both spiritual and physical. They were aware that if God wasn't going to ultimately be in control and defend them, that it did not matter how many weapons they had, and it definitely didn't matter how big one side of the conflict was compared to the other. The truth of being a servant of God is that you will be outnumbered by contrary people. I think that's true in our world. But that does not mean that contrary will win. You're not responsible. God is to defend. And he wants us to trust him to do it. We talk a lot about being courageous and the need to be courageous. I want to be a courageous person. I want to raise courageous children. I want to have a courageous church. I want to have courageous relationships. But the question is, do we believe that courage is simply what the world does, which is confidence in ourselves and our own ability to do things? Or do we believe in a courage which is confidence in God over and above? even what we can do. How productive can a servant really be if they're constantly defending themselves, if they're constantly fighting? I think one of the reasons why this is such good news to us is because we have to choose to let God be our defense so that we can keep serving others. I cannot serve my enemy while I'm fighting my enemy. I cannot love my neighbor while I'm battling with my neighbor. I simply cannot do it. You read about um, in Nehemiah, um, as the wall is being rebuilt in the Old Testament, that he literally had to hold a, every worker had to have a spear in one hand and hold a rock in the other. And the rock wasn't a weapon. They were building a wall. Can you imagine how long it would take to build a wall if you had to hold a spear in one hand all the time? And you only had one hand to work with? I mean, you'd literally, it'd be like watching the little rascals hit a nail with a hammer. One of you would be holding the nail, one of you would be the hammer. That's not a very productive way to get things done. By choosing to let God be our defense, we choose to focus on what he's actually called us to do, which is to love and serve others and to serve him in doing so. This is not about being passive, and this is not about giving up. This is about saying we care more about the job he's given us and what we're called to do, and we trust him enough to know that we can do it, even when there are opponents, and even when there are enemies. We then read about, what we read about throughout this psalm, is the reward that God gives. And it doesn't specifically state the reward, but it's because it's so clear what the reward is that the psalmist is just talking about how much they need it all the time. And the reward is this. Our reward for serving God, our reward for making our lives about him and about others and not ourselves, our reward for not defending ourselves and doing that is the mercy of a very, very good God. You will either live your life trying to work for yourself and only get what you earn, which won't be that much. Or you will spend your life living as a servant of God, receiving the mercy of God. This servant is looking to their master. Look, they say this, I lift up my eyes. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. This is a person looking to their hand of their master because that is where they receive good things. Your mercy towards me, God. The psalmist begins with, you are enthroned in the heavens. If you have a God who is enthroned in the heavens, who is bigger than all things, and that God shows favor toward you, there is nothing better than that right there. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who at ease of the contempt of the proud. This psalmist is desperate for one thing. It is the mercy of God. There is nothing greater than God's wonderful mercy. We do not deserve life and yet God gives it to us. We do not deserve good things, and yet God chooses to give those things to us as well. We don't deserve for God to look upon us with love and favor and with mercy, and the incredibly good news of the gospel is also that we still get to anticipate God's mercy towards us. I don't need power. I don't need to win. I don't need to accomplish things, and I don't need to be as comfortable as everyone around me because I have something that is far better than all of those things, the mercy of our Heavenly Father. We need to hear that because as we leave here, we go and are surrounded by those who do want comfort in other things, who do want to be in control, who are going to fight whenever attacked, And we must be reminded that we do this not just because we're told to, but because the mercy of God is greater. We ultimately must make a choice. And that choice is whether or not we will trust God, or whether or not we will seek to trust ourselves and how we can make sense of things. I think what this all comes down to, anytime you're called to live against the grain like this in such an extreme way, when you're called to see freedom as an opportunity to live as a servant, why on earth would I do that? In fact, in all the chaos and the craziness and turmoil of life right now for any one of us, it's like the last thing that I can do is say I'm now going to go be about serving and caring for the needs of others. That will only make things worse. That's like the one thing I know I probably can't do right now. I was reading a story that I read a long time ago about a pastor who went and, to visit Mother Teresa. There's a lot of fake Mother Teresa stories out there, I think. This is one of the real ones, um, so I'll just say that. He was seeking clarity in his life. And so he, he knew, he knew enough to know, like, if I want clarity, then I'm going to just go and serve with someone like Mother Teresa. I'm going to go live the way Jesus did, and I'm going to serve with others, and I'm going to be around that. I'm not going to read a book. I'm not going to go ask some person with a PhD. I'm just going to go serve in humility, and I'm going to receive clarity from the Lord by doing that. And as this man was working with Mother Teresa, she asked him one day, how may I pray for you? And he was like very excited because this is really why he was here. And he said, pray for clarity. She said, I will not pray for that. She said, I have never had clarity. I will pray for trust. Because that is what I choose to do. There are two ways that we can live our lives. One is in control, ourselves. And our desperate need is for clarity. I need to know what's coming next. I need to know where this is going. I need to know how things are going to pan out. I I just need that. Just give me that, God. Give me some understanding of how things are going to go and how things need to be and how in the world this can make more sense than it makes right now. Just give me that clarity, God, and I will serve you, I promise. But that clarity that we desperately desire and want is our desire to be God, to be in control. We just need to know that it's all going to work out a certain way. And what Mother Teresa realized in her many years of service was, I don't do this so that I can make sense of things, so that I can even be more clear than I was yesterday. I must choose to trust God in the midst of not knowing how this is all going to resolve I must choose that the only way that we really show trust in God is not in the circumstances that we cannot change and that we cannot control it is in the circumstances that we can change and control there is nothing harder than giving over and trusting when you can do something about a thing it's like varsity level trust right JV-level trust is like, I can't do anything about this situation, so I'm going to trust you, God, because I have no choice. What about the situation where I get freedom and I get to choose how I'm going to go live my life now? Do I trust God enough to choose to live as a servant? What about when I get the opportunity because I'm being attacked and because I'm surrounded by contrary people? To either defend myself or when I could defend myself and I could do something and I could fight back and I could get distracted by that. To trust God enough to say, I'm actually going to let you do that for me. Even though I could, I'm going to let you do it. What it takes in order for this servant to truly live with this great master is to trust the master. And this is what we pray for. This is what we need. This is what I pray that God gives each and every one of us to a greater degree, even though I know that's a really scary prayer to pray because he might do some really crazy things in order to cause you to trust him more. Let's pray.